thank you, Ashley and Ira, for that reminder, friends, how different our lives would be if we keep our mind focused on that day when we'll see Jesus face to face. How different our daily decisions would be if we would live in light of eternity. And I'm grateful for you guys reminding us in song of really what we're saying in all of Ephesians, of letting Christ transform us in all ways we think about him and who he's making us into. I want you to find in your copy of God's Word on your Bible app on your phone, Ephesians chapter 5 this morning as we continue our journey through Paul's letter to the people in Ephesus and to us. As we begin this morning, there's a question I want us to think about, and it's simply this. Is some sin in our lives okay? Is some sin in our lives okay? In other words, is it okay to tolerate, to accept some sin in our life? Now, before we go on, we need to make sure our definitions are clear. And what do I mean by the word sin? Now, sin technically means missing the mark. If you think of any of you do archery, if you think of a target, and you shoot an arrow at the target, when the arrow doesn't hit the target, when it misses the target, you're missing the mark. It's not hitting the standard. Sin is not, is not meeting God's standard. And what is God's standard? Well, he tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, which is a quotation of the Old Testament, Be holy as I am holy. The, the mark, the standard is God's own holiness, God's own character. And so sin, then, is anything that is inconsistent with the perfect holiness of God. It is inconsistent with the character of God. That is sin. It's not just things we do that are wrong. It's also not doing the things he's called us to do. Anything inconsistent with his character and his commands. Friends, think about what we've been seeing in Ephesians, though. In Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, that we spent many months looking at, we have a new identity in Christ because of all he has done for us. And that new identity is that he has made us holy. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done there. When he looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. Therefore, sin really is anything that is inconsistent with our new standing as holy ones before the Lord. We think about the phrase we saw twice in Ephesians chapter 4. As is proper among the saints. As is proper among the saints. Sin is anything that is inconsistent. Not just with the character of God, but anything inconsistent with who he's made us to be. Who he sees us as, us being holy. Now, with that definition in view, Scripture is obviously very clear. We all have sin. First John is abundantly clear that if any of us says we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We all struggle with sin. I don't want to presume that that's not a real force. We all struggle with sin. But the question of is some sin in our lives okay is not about whether or not we struggle, but it's really a question about our standard. What is our standard that we're longing for in our lives? Do we act as though our standard is Christ-likeness? That though we struggle because of a sin nature, our longing, our heart's desire is Christ-likeness. We want to be holy like God is holy. Or is our standard, well, I just don't want to be as bad as other people. I don't want to be as bad as the world. Or is our standard really no standard that I'm going to do what I want to do? Is some sin in our lives okay? If you think about the answer to that question, friends, I don't want you to give me the church answer. Because I would expect that everyone in this room would be like, of course not, Grady. No sin in our life is okay. We would all give the right answer. But what do our words, what do our actions, what do our thoughts really show about what we believe? Have we become content with certain sins in our life? Though we can give the church answer, have we become comfortable with tolerating, accepting some sins in our personal life? Have we become okay with private sins that no one sees? Sins of our thoughts. It can be bitterness or unforgiveness. It can be sins of lust. Have we become content with other types of sins? In fact, there's a fascinating book from Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins. There's a lot of sins that the church thinks are really bad, and we tend to focus on those, but have we become comfortable in our lives with respectable sins like discontentment? 
materialism, judgmental attitudes, worry, stress, unforgiveness, and he goes on and on. But are we comfortable with even those type of sins in our lives? So we look to Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. I want to go ahead and tell you what I want you to look for in the text. is simply this. We must guard ourselves against believing that any sin in our life is okay. We must guard ourselves against believing that any sin in our lives is okay. Friends, there is a very real danger in my heart and your heart to justify sins in our life. To look at those, again, what Bridges calls respectable sins and think, well, that's really not that bad. To look at private sins in our life and our thoughts and go, well, those are really harmless to look at unforgiveness in our life and go, well, that's really warranted in my situation. To look at materialism and go, well, that's just normal. To look at anxiety or worry and be like, it can't be helped. I can go on and on with that. But it's a real danger for us, friends, because there's a very real enemy who works very hard to make sin acceptable to you and to me. There is a world all around us that thinks God's standard of holiness is absurd, is prudish, is weird. It's going to do all they can to tell us that that's not normal. But then ultimately, friends, our own flesh, our own desires want what we want. And so easily listen to all the counsel around us. And before we know it, it's become comfortable tolerating and accepting sin in our life. So, friends, before we even get to our text this morning, I want us to pause for just a moment and pray. And I want us to each just privately where we're sitting to pray this prayer. Lord, show me, are there any sins in my life that I've become comfortable with? Because, friends, God is a revealing God, and He loves to speak to us. He loves to guide us. He loves to show us. He loves to convict us because He loves us. So I'd like for all of us to pause for just a minute and look to our Father and say, God, show me, is there anything in my life that I've become comfortable with? Would you pause and pray that for just a moment? Father, we thank you that you are a revealing God. And God, you love it when us, your children, run to you for help. And Lord, we just ask this day that if there are sins in our life that we have become comfortable with accepting, that really don't bother us anymore, that we become really not even repentant about, God, that today through the work of your Holy Spirit applying your holy word, I pray today you would give us fresh conviction, not to make us miserable, but fresh conviction to bring us to repentance and brokenness that we might have restoration with you and with one another. So we take your word this day and apply it to our lives as only you can do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to see again from Ephesians chapter 5 this morning that we have to guard ourselves by God's grace against believing that any sin in our lives is okay. So I want you to see how Paul counters our tendency to justify sin. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 5 and 6. I can ask you to stand please in honor of the reading of the word of God. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 5. I'm reading out the English standard version. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. May God bless the reading of his word, and you may be seated. So I want you to see in Paul's writings to the people in Ephesus, how we're to guard ourselves against believing that sin in our lives is okay. And what you see in this text this morning that Paul shows us that we need to guard ourselves from two things, from our own deceit, our own heart, our own sinful tendencies, but also we need to guard ourselves from the lies of others. So how do we guard ourselves from our own deceit, and how do we guard ourselves from the deceit of others? Let's start with our own hearts, because that's the, honestly the greater 
threat for us, friends, because our hearts, our souls have an amazing tendency to want to justify sins in our life. Look back at verse number 5 again. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, it's the first word here, verse 5, you, for you. He's writing to believers. He's writing to the people he's already called saints, holy ones, people who have been chosen by God, adopted by God, all that we saw in 1 through 3. He's writing to us as believers. He's not writing to the world here. He's writing to believers. He says, you believers, you saints, you may be sure of something. This word, this, the word, at least the way the ESV translate may be sure. All of our translations struggle with this because Paul takes two words for no and puts them back to back. He literally says, you may know, you may know, or you may know, no. And he's not just stuttering here in this. He's trying to make a point to us here that this is something that we should have no uncertainty about. I kind of think sometimes he might translate this in a more southern dialect of you may know beyond a shadow of a doubt right here, that he's saying with certainty, you may know, you may know. And what is it that you and I as believers, as saints in God's eyes, what is it that we may know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we should have no wavering on, no question about, no uncertainty, no hesitation? What is it that we should be unwavering about? And that's how God views sin. Look back at verse 5. For you, believers, may be sure, may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, he lists several sins here, friends. Realize this is not designed to be an exhaustive list. He's giving examples here. He's giving examples based on what he had just been teaching, what we've seen in the last three or four weeks in the first part of Ephesians chapter 5. These are just examples, but it's not the only place. I want you to see that he has more in view because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, he has very similar terminology but expands out the list. Listen to how Paul describes this to the people when he's writing to the people in Corinth. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You notice a very similar language to Ephesians 5. Do not be deceived. Again, similar language here. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So notice he's expanded out the list here. What we see in Ephesians 5 or 1 Corinthians 6 is not exhaustive. Okay, good. My sin is not on that list. I am okay. The point here is sin in our life has consequences here. And it's showing us how God handles those who persist in unrepentant sin. And back in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, what does God do with people who persist in their sin and never turn to him for forgiveness? The last phrase of verse 5, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. They have no inheritance, for this is an image of relationship. Again, think back to Ephesians 1 through 3. We see that God has adopted us into his family. He has given us a seat with him in the heavenly places. He's given us blessings. He's given us grace upon grace. It's all an image of being in relationship with him. He's saying that those who do not turn from their sins and look to Christ will not have that experience of his blessings now and forever that they do not really belong to him. No matter how many times they've prayed a sinner's prayer, Walton and I have been baptized, joined the church, even served in church leadership, if they continue to persist in their sin and they do not have a desire in their heart to turn from it to Christ and be free, saying those things don't matter, you have no inheritance no matter what external things you have done. But it's not just they miss something, they get something. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, what are these things? That's that list of sins he's just mentioned. Again, but any sin, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God's wrath comes. What is his wrath? His wrath is his holy, good, and just punishment against sin. 
It says holy, good, and just punishment against sin. It's one of God's attributes. When we did a study a while back on the attributes of God, we saw that God is love and merciful. He's also just and righteous and wrathful. Now, honestly, friends, it's not the attribute we talk about a whole lot. I mean, no one starts a Christian radio station and calls it K-Wrath. Like, that's not the attribute of God that we run to. That's not what we think about. I mean, how many songs do you even know that talk about the wrath of God? How much teaching do we even hear when we turn on the radio about the wrath of God? It's an attribute of God's character we tend to run from, but it's revealed in Scripture. It's part of His good nature, His holy nature. Friends, if God was not wrathful, he would not be holy in his perfection, in his holiness, in his justice. He has to punish sin. If he does not punish sin, he is no longer perfect and just and holy and righteous, and he's not God. It's a part of his nature on this. And so his wrath is poured out against all sin. He can't sweep any sin under the rug, so to speak. Either Christ bears it for us or we bear it. Every sin will have the wrath of God poured out against it. There's no winking at sin in God's holiness. And either we face the wrath of God or we repent from our sins and turn to Christ and He absorbs that very wrath that should have been directed at us. Friends, I want to be clear about something here in Ephesians 5, 5 and 6. When it talks about back in verse 5, all these things, these people have no inheritance. Or verse 6, that the wrath of God comes against them. This does not mean if you've ever done these things, you're out of luck, sorry, you're outside the kingdom. Notice back in verse 5, the tense of all this. You may be sure this everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater. This isn't passive. It doesn't say everyone who was these things. It's everyone who is these things. It's the idea of continuous action. Whoever is sexually immoral and continues to be sexually immoral and continues to be sexually immoral and continues till the day they die because they don't repent, they don't turn to God, that's what's in view here. This doesn't mean if this was in your past, you're out of luck. That's not at all what this is talking about. Likewise, this does not mean if you struggle with these things, sorry, you're out, you're not a child of God. Because children of God still struggle with a sin nature. The struggle is a good sign we're God's children because it means we don't want that in our lives. And we find conviction of it. And so by God's grace, we're fighting against this. This is not if you struggle with these things, sorry, you're not a child of God. This is people who continue in these things without that desire to turn to God. It's people whose lives are characterized by these things. And honestly, they're quite content being characterized by these things. So friends, with that in view, back to the point of the whole text here that we're to guard ourselves. How does knowing what happens to non-believers who do not repent, how does that help us as children of God guard ourselves against tolerating sin in our life? Well, I think it does two things for us. Number one, friends, it reminds us of how seriously God views sin. When we think about the wrath of God will be poured out against all those who do not repent and turn to Him, as we think about the withholding of the blessing of inheritance to all those who do not turn to Him, it reminds us of how God views sin. Sin is not a trivial matter. It will be punished, and either we will receive the punishment or Christ will take it on our behalf, and He will feel the punishment that we deserve. Judgment comes against every sin. So it reminds us God takes sin very seriously. I think the second thing it does for us when we think about the truth of verses 5 and 6, it reminds us that God has rescued us from that sin. It reminds us that God has rescued us from that sin. He's rescued us from the penalty of that sin, that we can, even though we're sinners because of what Christ did, we can have an inheritance. Even though we're sinners, we can be rescued from the wrath to come and not have to fear judgment, not have to fear hell. So He rescues us from the penalty of that sin. But friends, I think too often we miss, He rescues us from the power of sin also. Not just He rescues us from the penalty of sin, He rescues us from the power of sin 
you and I as followers of Christ, though we struggle, we no longer have to sin. We were just reading a minute ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. I want to go back to that text because it's fascinating where Paul goes next. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, we'll go back to verse 10 first, and we'll start off in the middle of his list. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's the bad news. Now verse 11. Do you not know... Wrong way, Taylor. Other way. Verse 11. There you go. Thanks. And such were some of you. Notice the past tense. Such were. All those things he's listed. Such were past tense some of you. But something has happened. You were now washed. And this is not just your forgiven friends. You're washed. You're made clean in God's sight. You were sanctified. To be sanctified is just a big word that means God is growing you in godliness. He's making you more like Christ. He's making you more holy. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, if we are in Christ, it doesn't matter what was in the past, that He has forgiven us, He's taken the wrath we deserve, but now He's given us power over that sin. We're no longer slaves to that sin. He's washed us. He's cleansed us from that. We're being rescued from the power of sin, which leads to an amazing promise a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And I would encourage you to write this one down, memorize this one, meditate on this one. Listen to this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Just let's pause there. Friends, whatever temptation is coming your way is not unique to you. Any temptation you feel Christ himself felt when he walked on this earth. There's no temptation that you will ever face to think, man, I'm the only one going through this. Other people in the world struggle, and Christ himself was tempted with whatever you were tempted with. But notice what goes on next. God is faithful. Cling to that character of his, God's character. He's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Friends, if we are in Christ, we saw in the first part of Ephesians, we have the Holy Spirit within us. He seals us for the day of redemption. He not just seals us to get us to heaven and just going to leave us on our own between now and then. He is empowering us to resist sin's power in our lives. He's, he's given us much grace that there's a way out. Every time we're tempted, God gives a way of escape. God will never let us be tempted in such a way that we cannot, by His grace, run out of it. And friends, He's rescuing us from the power of sin. Friends, we must guard ourselves against believing that sin in our life is okay. He's rescued us not just from the penalty of sin, but He's rescued us from the power of sin. And we see here how seriously He views sin. Therefore, we must guard ourselves against believing that any sin in our life is okay to the Lord. So, friends, though our heart is the greatest danger to us of deceiving ourselves, there's also a second danger, and that's being deceived by people around us as sin in our lives is okay. So just as we guard ourselves against listening to the, the deceit of our own heart, we guard ourselves against listening to the deceit of others. Look back at verse 6 in Ephesians 5. By the way, Ephesians 5, verse 5, was just a statement. You can be sure of something. He's just telling us what is, what's out there. Verse 6 now is a command. This is an imperative of something that we as children of God must do. Verse 6, listen to his command here. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He says, do not be deceived. Do not be lied to. Do not let other people persuade you of what? Of empty words, of things that are devoid of truth, of things that are not true. Friends, there is all around us words, being, words coming our way that seek to persuade us that sin is not sin. All around us are words coming at us that seek to persuade us that what the Bible calls sin is really okay and that whatever in our life, you know, don't worry about it there. It's a real danger that's always existed. It was a real danger to the people in Ephesus when Paul wrote this letter. In fact, I love how the Bible shows us actual history. This is not just 
nice teaching. It's actually historical here. In Acts chapter 20, is an account for us of Paul meeting with the Ephesian elders, the leaders of the church, after he spent some time with them before he departs. And when Paul meets with the Ephesian elders before he leaves, he doesn't give them a little happy pep talk about claiming what's best next and running after it. He gives them a sobering warning. His final words to these, these Ephesians that he loves so much, these people in Ephesus, is really sobering. I want you to see it. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, of what Paul tells the leaders of the church in Ephesus. He says, Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock, imagery for the church, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. How's that for an encouraging final pep talk before he leaves? Fierce wolves are going to come in. Fierce wolves, not literal wolves barking at people, but wolves who are teachers, who are going to disguise themselves as people who love God, but they're going to come in attacking the truth. Not sparing the flock. Then verse number 30. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, how would you feel if you're the Ephesian elders and Paul's like, hey, I've got a final word for you before you go. Oh, great. What's he going to tell me? Hey, wolves are coming in. And yeah, even among your own church, people are going to rise up and teach bad stuff. Go protect them all. That's his final word for them because there's a danger of being persuaded about God's character that's not what the Bible says. There's a danger in being persuaded about what about sin in our lives. Friends, that danger is still around today. I think every one of us have heard statements like, you know, I know the Bible talks about hell, but God is too loving to send anyone to hell. You've heard statements like, you know, what the Bible teaches about sex and gender, that, that's just all cultural. That doesn't apply anymore. We all know people who are struggling with a particular sin in their life, and, and you may hear things like, well, I know God says that, but God understands in your situation. Or you hear people saying, you know, no, you don't have to change. God loves you just the way you are. Our culture, our world throws at us very similar lives, very much like what the people in Ephesus had to counter as well. And the reality, friends, is those lies often work. You look around at churches today, you look around at the culture, you look at our own hearts and how easily deceived we are by these lies about what sin is. And the reason they work, friends, is because we're simply hearing so often what we want to hear, what our flesh and our hearts already want to hear. Paul warns Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 about this and about our tendency for this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, he says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Sound teaching is what? God's nature, his holiness, his character, eternity. Sound teaching about sin and truth and godliness and holiness. People will not endure sound teaching, but they're having itching ears. Get that image. Itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Then verse number 4, And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Myths about God's character, myths about God's standard, myths about sin in our lives, myths about holiness, all those type things. It's true then, it's true now. Friends. We must guard ourselves against believing that any sin in our lives is okay. We guard our own, ourselves from our own hearts and we guard ourselves from the lies that get thrown at us as well. So how do we, friends? How do we guard ourselves? This sounds great, but how do we practically do it? I'll give you four things I think will help Help me, and I pray we'll help you as we seek to guard ourselves from the deceitfulness of sin in our own hearts and from those around us. Number one, pretty simple, be aware of our tendency to justify sin. Just be aware of our heart's tendency to want to justify sin. Our heart longs so much to just accept the way we want to do things, what our flesh wants, what our old nature wants. Just be aware of that tendency, friends. Number two, sounds so simple, but study the Word of God daily. Study the Word of God daily. Friends, these lies come at us from our own heart and from the culture on a daily basis. We must counter it with the truth of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
verse 16 is a, is a great text for us about the Word of God. That all Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching us, for reproof, for correction. So when we're erring, when we're beginning to believe lies about sin, the Scriptures correct us in that. And they train us in righteousness. Friends, we must run to the Word of God daily. If we're not daily sitting in the Word of God and thinking about it, is it any wonder our hearts start running after justifying sins in our life? Is it any wonder we're so easily deceived by those around us telling us that our sins are okay if we're not being corrected daily with the Word of God? In fact, this is what Paul points the Ephesian elders to. I want us to go back to Acts chapter 20, verse 29, that we were just looking at. Again, his final pep talk, if you will, to the Ephesian elders before he leaves. Listen to what he says, but what we just read, but notice then where he goes with that in terms of how they can guard themselves. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. In verse 30, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. That's what I was just saying. Be aware of our tendency. Be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Now look at this. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Friends, what does he tell the Ephesian elders? Yeah, you're going to have a lot of people trying to deceive you, both from within the church and from outside. So what do you do? Be alert. Be aware of what's happening. And then I commend to you the word of grace, God's word, because it is what will build you up. It's what will keep you strong in the midst of the deceit of your own heart and the deceit of those around you to help you get that inheritance to all those who are sanctified. I know it sounds so simple, friends, but there's no substitute for studying the word of God daily if we want to Walk in holiness. So number one, be aware of our tendency to justify sin. Number two, say the word of God daily. Number three, we must pursue Christian community. We must pursue Christian community. So this is going to be an easy question for you here because you've been studying Ephesians for 32 weeks with me here. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, you notice there's a word there, the word you. We talked about this a lot. In English, you use very nonspecific. In Greek, there's a singular you and a plural you. We says, you may be sure this is this singular or plural Plural. Oh, man, y'all are smart. You got it. This is the plural you. He's using the community you, not the individual you. We look at this and we often think about just me. This is you, plural. So you could probably literally translate this. Y'all may know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Or you guys may know, know. You may know with absolute certainty. You together with absolute certainty can know this to be sure. He's saying that together we have this confidence. Not just me holding on and trying to regain my confidence, but us together in community help each other have this confidence. Likewise, verse 6, this will be easy, but no one deceive you, singular or plural. It's a plural you here also. Let no one deceive y'all. Let no one, when you're together, lead you astray. This is the plural you. How does community help us know with certainty? How does community help us guard from being deceived? Think back to Ephesians chapter 4 and all we saw. What are we to do in community? We're to equip one another. We're to build one another up. We're to together find the knowledge of God. We're to together speak the truth in love. Together we're to truth one another. Together we're to speak words that build up. Together we're to have speech that gives grace. When we are living in community together, we're able to speak and warn each other in love about the deceitfulness of sin. We together, as we study the Word of God, help each other gain confidence in what God's Word says, no matter how unpopular it is in our own heart or in the world around us. And so, friends, as we share lives, we have to love each other enough to speak the truth to one another. Community is God's grace gift to us to guard ourselves from our own deceit and from the deceit of others. Now, pursuing community means two things very practically. 
It means we must initiate pursuing relationships. It means we don't wait for the church to hand us a program. It means we don't wait for someone to come approach us. It means we take the initiative to pursue community with other people. But second of all, it means we have to be vulnerable. This is where it's a hang-up for a lot of us. We have to be vulnerable. We have to be real with people. When someone says next Sunday morning, hey, how are you? Don't say good if you're not good. Don't say it's been a great week if it's you're really struggling. We need to be vulnerable and real with one another who loves each other and who covenants together to, to walk this Christian life together as the people of Gateway. We need to be vulnerable and real with one another to say, hey, I'm struggling right now with the sin in my life. Or, hey, I'm really struggling with discouragement or bitterness or whatever else. And to be real and to bring community and to bring light into our struggles. We need community to guard ourselves from believing the sin in our lives is okay. So three things. Be aware of our tendency to justify sin study the Word of God daily, and pursue Christian community. There's a fourth one that I want to mention as well. What is a grace gift God gives us to help guard against the deceitfulness of sin? It's to celebrate communion. Now, that's not just a, a cheap segue to try to get us to the next part of the worship service this morning, but it's a serious thing, reminder that we are called to celebrate communion. Think of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through verse 25. He said, through 25, he says, For I received from the Lord... What I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in, what's the next word? Remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in what? Remembrance of me. We take communion to remind ourselves of things, to remember what our hearts are so prone to forget, to remember who Christ is, to remember how God views sin, to remember the cost that was paid to rescue us, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin in our lives. It's a reminder of the invitation to come to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places, to we who are his enemies who are now seated at his table. It's a reminder of all those things, and it's a very visual reminder. It's a very visual people. He gave us a very dynamic symbol of bread being broken, of juice that reminds us of his blood, to remind us of what he has done for us. Friends, in my own life, so many times sitting there, taking communion. There's been fresh conviction of sin, of things that I had passed over. There's been fresh encouragement to pursue knowing Christ more deeply. It is a grace gift God has given us to guard against the deceitfulness of sins as well as to worship Him for all He has done. Friends, we must guard ourselves against believing that sin in our life is okay. Be aware of our tendency to justify our sin, study the Word of God daily, grow in Christian community, and celebrate communion regularly with worship and reflection. So let's go back to our opening question. Is some sin in our lives okay? And what is our standard? The answer obviously is no. But have there become areas in my heart and your heart where we become comfortable with sins that God says, no, you're my child. I want to give you grace to put these off. Friends, as we do come to communion this morning, it is a great time for us to reflect that if you are a child of God, this is a precious moment in our busy weeks to pause and to remember that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of our sins, that his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. It's a time for us to pause and to reflect and to remember. It's a time to also examine ourselves, to ask the Holy Spirit to search us, just like we began the service with the question in the prayer time, saying, God, show me, is there, are there sins in my life I'm comfortable with? This is a great time to continue those prayers. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul warns the people in verses 27 and 28 as well about the dangers of the deceitfulness of sin and the reminder to be pursuing things with reflection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, he says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Friends, as we come to communion, we encourage you to not rush this. As you receive the elements, to go back to your seat, to take time to reflect, to have the Holy Spirit search your heart, and to simply pray like you pray again, Lord, is there any unconfessed sin I'm not dealing with? Lord, is there any sin that I've become comfortable with I need to repent of? And to, in humility before the Lord, ask the Lord to search us, and He loves to search us. Not because He wants to make us uncomfortable and miserable, but because He wants to heal. He wants to restore. So friends, if you are a child of God, if you know, know, to use Paul's language here, if you know for certainty, know beyond a shout out, that Christ has forgiven you of your sins, that you belong to God and you're a child of God, you are welcome. You do not have to be a member of Gateway to take this. This is for anyone who knows they belong to God. If you're not a follower of Christ and you're not sure you're a child of God, I'd encourage you just to remain in your seat when we come to receive the elements. No one's going to look at you funny. There's no shame in that. I encourage you to use the time just to pray and say, God, I think a lot of this is crazy, but if you're real, show me. I just encourage you, would you, if you're not sure you're a follower of Christ, just sit there and say, Lord, if you're real, would you show me? God loves to reveal himself. But for those of you who are children of God, in just a moment, our deacons will direct you. You'll come to the front to receive the bread and the juice. I hope you won't rush things, but as you go back to your seat to pray, to reflect, to search, and to worship God, knowing that Christ died to bring you into a relationship with him. Christ died to rescue you from the penalty of sin, and Christ died to rescue you from the power of sin, so we no longer have to be bound to the sinful tendencies, ones that we know we should put off of, and those ones we become comfortable with. He died to set us free from it all. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful for your love for us, that you looked upon undeserving sinners like us. And when we were so unworthy, when we were still your enemies, Christ, you still died for us. And God, we're thankful for that glorious news we call the gospel, the good news. That though we can never get to you, you came to us. That Lord Jesus, you came as a man. You came and you lived a perfect life. You never broke any command. You perfectly fulfilled the law so that you could go to the cross to be our perfect sacrifice, our perfect substitute. And to realize on the cross that every sinful thing I've done or any of these precious brothers and sisters have done, you willingly took it. You allowed the wrath of the Father to be poured out on you so that we wouldn't have to experience that. You took the wrath and the punishment so that we could have an inheritance, so we could be adopted, so we could have a seat with you at the table in heaven. God, I pray we treasure that today, that we have an inheritance and we've been spared from the wrath to come. I pray as we look at the bread and remember, Lord Jesus, that your body was broken. I pray that we would treasure that, that you allowed yourself on the cross to have your body broken and your blood poured out, that we might not just have forgiveness, but we might have an inheritance as well. Or for those of us who know you, I pray that as we celebrate communion now, that it would be an act of worship and thankfulness. That God, our hearts would overflow with realizing how undeserving we are and yet how loving and merciful and gracious you have been. Or if there's anyone in the room who's never trusted in you, I pray that right now, Lord, that you would so be speaking and drawing them, that they would know that you are real and they would be willing to confess you as the Lord. So Lord, would you accept this act of worship and transform us even as we worship you now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.